Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, well, as we begin today, I've been asked two questions already. Um, One question is, what is the church on the screen? Uh, That is Canterbury Cathedral, so really the mother church of Anglicanism. And the second question is, can you please connect the dots between the Tudors and the present-day monarchy? Yeah, that's quite a lot of history to cover. Um, (laughs) We've been talking at great length about um, the royal family. Um, over the course of the history of the church, and that's because uh, the members of the royalty, uh, the monarchs in particular, had a profound influence on the life of the church, particularly in those early days. So I'm going to try to do this as a whirlwind trip. I hope I don't leave anybody out, um, but I'll try to give you just sort of a thumbnail sketch, and so we'll take it from the Tudors through to the prison house of of Windsor Mountbatten, and then we'll go back again. Uh, to the 16th century, if that's okay with you. So I'll I'll try to connect the dots here just so you get an idea of what it was like. So we'll start with Henry VII. Henry VII, of course, was the father of Henry VIII. That's where we really started this story about how there were disagreements, really, that took place between what was happening in England and what was happening on the continent. Henry VII had two sons. One of his sons was Arthur, the elder son. And Arthur was... uh, forced, really, into a marriage of convenience. It was intended to be a political alliance uh, with the daughter of the Prince of Aragon. So Arthur married Catherine of Aragon. And then Arthur became sick, died of what was known in that day as the sweating sickness. It was probably the result of poor sewage in the time period. And he died, and then his father, Henry VII, tried to force his younger brother, Henry VIII, into a marriage with his widow. And so that's how Henry VIII came to marry Catherine of Aragon. You know, of course, they could not produce a male heir. That was very disturbing to Henry VIII. You know the difficulties that they faced. We've already talked about that. Henry's going to die. Uh, The throne will pass to his only male heir by his third wife, Jane Seymour. The male heir will be styled Edward VI. So Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI. Edward VI will die when he's about 15 years of age from what is probably tuberculosis. When he dies, there will be a queen for nine days. Her name is Lady Jane Grey. It's an attempt to pass the throne off to a Protestant. It doesn't work. She's executed, and his half-sister by Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon ascends the throne. That's Mary Tudor. That's Mary I. So Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I. Are you with me so far? If you're not with me, you're never going to get the rest of this. So so Mary comes to the throne. This is the reign of Bloody Mary. Uh, You have a Catholic counter-reformation that takes place, uh, but she dies, and she dies without issue. And her half-sister, Elizabeth, who is the child of Henry VIII and his second wife, Anne Boleyn, comes to the throne. Elizabeth, good Queen Bess, lives for a very long time period. All right? She is a Protestant. She brings the church in line with Protestantism again. But it's going to be a more tempered Protestantism. We've been talking about that. 
She is the virgin queen. She never marries, which means she never has a legitimate heir. When she dies, her cousin... Now, her first cousin was really... Really, a second... First cousin once removed would have been Mary, Queen of Scots. Don't confuse Mary, Queen of Scots with Mary Tudor. They're two different people. Mary, Queen of Scots is the Queen of Scotland, although she lives most of her life in France... Why not? Um, in those days, Scotland or France, trust me, you would have chosen France too. But at any rate, um, she is a pretender to the English throne. Elizabeth eventually has her executed. She's placed in the Tower of London. She's eventually executed. But when Elizabeth dies, she has no issue. And so Mary, Queen of Scots' son, who is James VI of Scotland, becomes James I of England. Yes, exactly. So, James I of England. So... Again, Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary I, Elizabeth I, James I, who is also James VI of Scotland, but James I. Those two lines and thrones are then united, the English throne and the Scottish throne. Elizabeth is the last of the Tudor monarchs. When James ascends the throne, that is the house of Stuart, that's a new royal house. So James I comes to the throne. When he dies, his eldest son, Charles I, takes over. Charles I has conflicts with Parliament. There will be a civil war. This is the English Civil War, the Cavaliers versus the Roundheads. Charles I will be executed by Parliament. When he's executed, England will begin what is known as the Commonwealth Period or the Period of the Protectorate. And a man by the name of Oliver Cromwell will assume the reins of leadership in England. So this period of the protectorate. Cromwell will die, as we all do, and as they all have. So Cromwell dies. His son takes over for about two years. He is not the leader that his father is. And there are a number of royalists that have come back. And what happens is, in 1660, there is the restoration of the monarchy. Charles II who is the son of Charles I, has been living in exile on the continent. He is welcomed back, and he becomes king. He dies without issue, and his younger brother assumes the throne. He's James II. Now, James II is a Catholic, and his older brother had been an Anglican, but on his deathbed converts to Catholicism. But he's not a clandestine or closet Catholics. He's out there in the open, which the people tolerate for a time. But then they become fearful when he has a male heir that there's going to be a Catholic monarchy, and they can't have that anymore. Remember the Elizabethan settlement, 1559. Can't have that anymore. And so what happens at that point is James I, or James II is deposed, and they ask his daughter, his eldest daughter, Mary, to assume the throne with her husband, who is William of Orange. And this begins the reign of William and Mary. The College of William and Mary is named for William and Mary. They reign as co-regents over the nation until Mary dies. Then William continues to reign, then he dies. They don't have any children. So at that point... Mary's sister, Anne, ascends the throne. 
So those of you who have seen the movie The Favorite, it's that Queen Anne. All right? So Anne comes to the throne. But she doesn't have any legitimate heirs either. She is the last of the Stuart monarchs. But in the early part of the 18th century, Parliament passes a law which is known as the Act of Settlement, which explicitly states that no more can any monarch sit on the throne of England who is a Catholic. That is still the law of the land in England today. So Anne will ascend the throne. When she dies, because she has no legitimate heir and because of the act of settlement, only Protestants can reign on the throne of England and Scotland. Her cousin, George I, who is a German prince, will ascend the throne. This is the introduction of what becomes known as the House of Hanover. All right? These are the Hanoverian kings. George I, who is sitting on the throne of England, doesn't speak a word of English, only German. George I was followed by George II, who's followed by George III, which you all should know because George III was the king during the American Revolution. He was burned in effigy here in Charleston. George III, toward the end of his reign, develops temporary insanity. His eldest son becomes Prince Regent, but not king, until the death of his father. Then he becomes George IV. He has lots of children. None of them are legitimate. Which means when he dies, his brother ascends the throne. And his brother becomes William IV. He has 11 children, none of them legitimate. When he dies, his niece, Victoria, ascends the throne. And she makes up for all of the children that the rest did not have. She becomes basically the grandmother of Europe, Queen Victoria, and that is the introduction of a new house. When she marries her husband, Prince Albert, who is a German prince, this is the introduction of a new royal house, Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. All right? Victoria will die. She lives a very long time. She will die. Her eldest son will ascend the throne as Edward VII. Edward VII will die. His eldest son, George V, will come to the throne. He is the king during the First World War. So we're up to the 20th century by this point, folks. He is concerned that the family name is a German name and they're at war with Germany. So he changes the royal family name to Windsor after the house that they're living in, Windsor Castle. So George V, first of the house of Windsor. He dies... His eldest son, the Prince of Wales, is styled Edward VIII. But Edward VIII falls in love with a divorced American. According to the law, he cannot ascend the throne. He abdicates. His younger brother, who is the Duke of York, becomes the King of England, George VI. He reigns during World War II, dies in 1952, at which point his eldest daughter, God bless her. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II ascends the throne of England. And there you have it, folks, from the Tudors the whole way through to the present day. Now, Brian, would you please pass out the test? And uh, (laughs) 
Let's see what everybody can do with that. So those are the monarchs from the Tudors, from Henry VII right on through to the present day. So there are connections. The queen is related uh, to these people that we've been talking about, although they are distant relatives uh, by this point. So, but all of those individuals will, in one way or another, have some kind of an effect to a lesser or greater degree on life in the church in England, because all of them, from the time of Elizabeth on, are going to be the supreme governors of the Church of England. All right? So, now let's go back in time. We're going to go back to the time of Queen Elizabeth, to the time of the Elizabethan settlement in 1559. England, by this point, is indeed a Protestant nation. There's no question about this. Uh, It is a Protestant nation. All of the things that had happened under Mary's reign have been undone. Although, as we said, it is a tempered reform. But there is a growing tension even among the Protestant church in England. There is a tension between two factions, between those who we would call traditional Anglicans, those who were in favor of the Elizabethan settlement, and those who felt that the Reformation in England was great as far as it went. The only problem was it didn't go far enough. And those are the people that are known as the Puritans, from the name Purify. They want to purify the church. So what are the distinguishing marks of Anglicanism under Elizabeth? Well, we said one was the restoration of the Book of Common Prayer, which had been outlawed during the reign of Mary. That's 1559. This is a more tempered book. It has both of the words of administration at communion, not just take and eat this in remembrance, and not just this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, but both of those. We said that Mary was very much like C.S. Lewis when he talked about communion. Jesus said, take and eat it, don't take and understand it. And so that's pretty much how Elizabeth felt about this. There is a restoration of the historic episcopate, or the upholding, rather, of the historic episcopate during the reign of Elizabeth I. There's a restoration of the articles. There have been 42 articles. They're pared down during Elizabeth's reign to 39. All right, 39 articles but they become the definitive statement of Anglican doctrine. And now that we are part of the Anglican Church of North America, they are still considered the doctrine for the Anglican Church of North America, the 39 articles. If you've never read them in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, I encourage you to do so. They are a wonderful statement of what we believe as Anglicans. And there was the maintenance of the threefold order of ministry. That's what is meant by the ordinal. That is to say that within the Anglican Church, there will be three orders within the clergy. Bishops, priests, and deacons. All are ordained orders. Now, as I said, that is the distinguishing marks of Elizabethan Anglicanism. But I said that there was this growing tension between those who favored that form of the Reformed Church, and those who felt that the church needed to go even further. And these are the Puritans. What are the distinguishing marks of Puritanism in this time period? Well, the first is an emphasis upon skilled preaching and teaching. They said, rightly handling the Word of God. That's a wonderful thing. The Puritans felt that most Anglican preachers were terrible preachers. And they were. And I hate to say that we as a tradition have not always produced the greatest preachers. 
Oftentimes the Presbyterians do a better job than we do. But one of the things that the Puritans in England wanted was an emphasis upon the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. If we really believe that the Bible is God's Word and it is the ultimate authority for the life of the church, then why wouldn't we want to know what the Word says? And so the Puritans placed a very heavy emphasis. This, more than anything else they talked about, was the preaching and teaching, the rightful rightful handling of the Word of God. But they believe that many of the church's ceremonies clouded, clouded out the pure, simple word. And so they argued for a reduction in ceremonies. In fact, they argued that these ceremonies, many of them, many of the symbols and the signs that were taking place in the liturgy or within the church were symbols that were superstitious. Things like signing the baby at baptism. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. They felt that that was a superstitious practice, and they wanted it to go away. They wanted an elimination of all vestments, all robes. And they weren't just talking about Eucharistic vestments, like chasubles. They even wanted the simple white surplus to go. They wanted the clergy to dress like everybody else, street clothes. Today, I guess that would be skinny jeans. It ain't going to happen. I'm just telling you. It ain't going to happen. Now, Brian might wear skinny jeans, but Jeff Miller will never be found in skinny jeans. So they wanted to eliminate all vestments, including the surplus. They wanted to eliminate the episcopacy as well. No more bishops and introduce a Presbyterian form of government. That's what the Puritans were advocating for the church in England. They wanted a true state church. This was the official church of the state, but they wanted a church that was controlled by Parliament, not by the monarch. So you can see that there is going to be growing tension between these two factions within the church. Now, the only reason it did not break out into all-out war is because of Queen Elizabeth I. She was a very effective ruler, and she maintained the peace in her realm. But as we all know, nobody lives forever. And on March 24, 1603, good Queen Bess, the Virgin Queen, Elizabeth died. Now, when she died, here's your test. Who assumed the throne? She was the Virgin Queen. No. James I of England, who is James VI of Scotland. That's right. So, James I ascends the throne of England. All right. Now, he's from Scotland. The Reformation had taken root in Scotland under the leadership of people like John Knox. It had gone much further in Scotland than it had in England. The church's government in Scotland is a Presbyterian form of government. They've eliminated vestments. They've done basically all of the things that the Puritans wanted done in Scotland. So, the Scottish church looks very much like the Genevan church under John Calvin. And the Scots like it that way. 
The Puritans in England, when Elizabeth dies and James ascends the throne, are very excited. Why? It's the Scottish king. He's been living with Presbyterianism for a long time. They see their opportunity. They think that they have a friend in James. But it doesn't turn out that way. James didn't like the fact that he was the king and that the Presbyterians were trying to curb his power. And when he comes to England, he begins to admire greatly the English church. He likes its structure. He does not like the Puritans and all of their rabble-rousing. So what are the characteristics of the reign of King James I? Let me say this about James. He was not a nice fellow. He was not a good fellow. But he was a very learned fellow. And he is going to take a deep interest in ecclesiastical matters. First thing that happens is, as I said, Puritan hopes are dashed. He's not interested in the Puritans. He said, I lived under the Puritans for years, and I have no desire to do so now. If they give me any trouble, I intend to rout them out of the realm. So he is not the least bit interested in helping out the Puritans. But a number of significant things happened during the reign of James I. In some ways, historians will say the reign of James I is sort of you know, lackluster. It's not all that exciting, especially compared to people like, you know, Mary and Henry and Elizabeth and so forth. But some very significant things happened for the Church of England during the reign of James I. First of all, the authorized version of the Bible was published in 1611, what many people would consider to be the greatest version of the Bible ever published in the English language, still considered to be, quote, the authorized version. And that, of course, is the King James Version. It's named in honor of James I. So, if nothing else, it is certainly the most beautiful prose in the English language. The King James Version of the Bible. An extraordinary piece of work. And, for the time period, an extraordinary piece of scholarship as well. It's not the most accurate version available today, but it is still a very good translation. And, my goodness... There are just some things like the 23rd Psalm and the King James Version that you just cannot beat. You just cannot beat. Magnificent translation. It takes place during the reign of King James I. And James had taken a great interest in the project and was instrumental in seeing its completion. Two notable clergymen also appear on the scene as lights during this time period. Brian mentioned one of them already in his sermon today. Those of you who haven't heard the sermon, you'll hear reference to him. The first is Lancelot Andrews. He was the Bishop of Chichester, Ely, and Winchester. He was one of the great devotional writers of the time period. He was also a great preacher, but one of his great contributions was that he was a great devotional writer. And his writings are still something that will bless you today, the writings of Lancelot Andrews. He is also someone who defended the historic Catholicity and the episcopacy of the church in England. Because some would argue that what happened during the reign of Mary was that the whole realm had been excommunicated under Henry, and it was restored under Mary, and then when Mary died and Elizabeth ascended the throne, all of England was excommunicated again. Well, Lancelot Andrews argues that we were not excommunicated. We still maintain that historic continuity back to the apostles via 
apostolic succession. So he defends that and defends it very ably. The other guiding light during this time period was John Donne, 1573 to 1631. He was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. He was one of the greatest preachers, probably the most renowned preacher of his day in the church in England, a great preacher. But what he is most known for today is for being a renowned poet. And Brian is going to quote one of his divine sonnets in the sermon today, so you have an opportunity to hear it. Batter my heart, three-person God, thy power to break, burn, blow, and make me new. So he is a famous poet, and he lives during the reign of James I. But not everything was bright. There were some darker parts to life under James in the Church of England. And one of those was the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices. James I, as I said, like the hierarchy in the Church of England over and against the more democratic form of government of Presbyterianism in Scotland. But he also liked people to be his supporters, and if you were his supporter, he would reward you. And that went for those who were working in the church. There was a great deal of buying and selling of ecclesiastical preferences during the time of James I. So you want to become the dean of a cathedral? You want to become a bishop? You better be a big supporter to the king. So there was a lot of that that took place. And what that means is that sometimes less than attractive individuals become high-ranking prelates in the church during the reign of James I. And there is a growing friction with the marginalized Puritans. The Puritans were a powerful force, but during the reign of James I, they feel marginalized. They had been very hopeful at the beginning. He really was serious about routing them out if they did not cooperate. And so they are very much marginalized during the reign of James I. But James I does not live forever. He will eventually die. And we said that when he dies, his son, Charles I, will ascend the throne. Uh, Charles I looks a little bit like Captain Hook, doesn't he? I mean, just actually, that's who they patterned Captain Hook after, was after Charles I of England. So a little bit of trivia means absolutely nothing, but it might be interesting to you. So King Charles I assumes the throne 1600. He will reign for 49 years. He will be problematic. First of all, he believes in the divine right of kings. He believes that he is king of England by the grace of God. Every bit as much as a bishop is a bishop by the grace of God. He's not an elected official. He has been chosen by divine providence. And he takes that seriously. Well, if he's been chosen by God... Who is Parliament to tell him what to do? People that are elected? Telling God's chosen servant how to operate? King's not going to do that, and he is not going to cooperate well with Parliament. He does not play well with others. And so he's going to do things like levy taxes against the people without the consent of Parliament. So there had always been a cooperative effort between the elected officials, between Parliament, the Lords and the Commons, and the Crown. But Charles I doesn't see it that way. He is the King of England and Scotland. 
and he's God's chosen instrument. Parliament is going to try and curb his powers, his royal prerogative. He is going to resist that mightily. He's going to resist that mightily. Something else is problematic about Charles I. He's the governor, the supreme governor of the Church of England, but he marries a Roman Catholic. Now just think about all of these wars that have been taking place between Protestants and Catholics, and everybody thought that was done with. Done with with Elizabeth, that she had settled all of that. And all of a sudden, the king marries a Roman Catholic. And they are afraid that she is going to be influential in the king's policies. So there is that problem. He is also a supporter of the high church movement. Now, when I say high churchmanship, that does not mean liturgical practice. It doesn't mean smells and bells. It just means he supports the authority of the church's hierarchy. He believes in archbishops, in bishops, and all of that. All of those people that had found their position by his father. And so he's a big supporter of a hierarchy in the church and the power of the few over the many. The Puritans are opposed to that. They want a more democratic form of government in the church and in the nation. This is a king who resists all. All of that. And he supports high churchmen. He appoints William Laud as Archbishop of Canterbury, who is probably the highest of the churchmen. Furthermore, there is a war that is taking place on the continent. Many would say it was the most costly war fought until World War I in Europe. And that is the Thirty Years' War. It's basically a war between Protestants and Catholics. If you're a Protestant... You're going to support the Protestant cause, no matter who you are, unless you're Charles I. Charles I tries to sit this one out. He's under tremendous pressure to support the Protestants who are trying to gain control of their nations in Europe, and he resists supporting the Protestant cause, which, again, raises question marks in the minds of the people. He's married to a Roman Catholic. We know how he supports the hierarchy. We know that he believes that he is a ruler by divine right. They're beginning to wonder if he's not perhaps more Catholic than he is Anglican. This was a big one. He tried to force an Episcopal form of government, that is to say bishops, on the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Now, if you know anything about the Scots, they don't like to have anybody push them around. How many of you have ever been to Edinburgh, Scotland? One of my favorite cities in the whole world, a great city. And I'm sure if you've been to Edinburgh, you have probably walked what is known as the Royal Mile. It's a mile uphill from Holyrood Palace at the bottom, Holyrood House, which is the Royal Palace at the bottom of the hill, the whole way up to Edinburgh Castle, at the top of the hill. Now, as you're making your way up the Royal Mile, about halfway up, there is a grand church. It's called the High Kirk of Scotland. Anybody know what it's called? St. Giles Cathedral. St. Giles Cathedral. It's a great church. If you've never been there, you probably have. You just don't remember but it was the High Church of Scotland. Now, here's what's interesting. It is called St. Giles Cathedral. What makes a church a cathedral? 
a bishop. The word cathedral comes from the Latin cathedra, meaning throne or chair. What makes a church a cathedral is that the bishop's chair, his headquarters, if you will, is located in that place. Which means if St. Giles' Cathedral is a cathedral, that means there has to be a what? There has to be a bishop, but there isn't. There was an attempt to force bishops on the church in Scotland. But those Presbyterians didn't want that. And they resisted it greatly to such a degree that ultimately it did not work. So we still call it St. Giles Cathedral, but it really isn't a cathedral at all. It's simply the high church or the high kirk of Scotland. So, very unhappy thing, trying to force the episcopacy on Scotland. He would preside over the English Civil War, we said, from 1642 to 1651, the Cavaliers versus the Roundheads. It's a great battle between the king and the authority of Parliament. Who's going to win? Ah, uh, indeed. And eventually the king will lose his head as a consequence of it. So Charles I disappears, passes from the scene. His son, Charles II, flees England and goes off to live in exile on the continent. At which point, this man takes over. This is Oliver Cromwell. He is a general in the English army. He is a very effective, efficient ruler. And he is a Puritan. And he is determined to get rid of everything that smacks of Catholicism or even looks like it might be Catholic. If it even smells like incense, it's got to go. During this period of the Commonwealth, or the Protectorate, from 1645 to 1659, the Book of Common Prayer will be outlawed. 1645. The Book of Common Prayer is outlawed. You cannot use it in worship. If you are found with it, you are going to be fined. If you're a clergyman using it, you're likely to be imprisoned. The Book of Common Prayer becomes illegal. The episcopacy is abolished. Bishops are out. Why? Because we want a Presbyterian form of government. And so that's what's going to be established in England, a Presbyterian form of government. In 1646, Parliament mandates Presbyterian governance. 3,600 clergymen who had taken an oath of allegiance to the king will lose their living during this time period. They'll be thrown out of their vicarage, out of their rectories, put on the street but they are no longer permitted to practice as clergymen in England. Now, this is serious because there is a potential loss of Episcopal succession. We said that one of the things that Lancelot Andrews had argued for was that continuous succession of bishops tracing their lineage back to the time of the apostles. What did the apostle Paul say to Timothy? Fan into flame the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Or from that time forward, people have been laying hands on each other and ordaining them, and there was this long line, this great continuum that had existed. All of a sudden, that is in danger of being lost forever. This wonderful pattern. 
Now, he is a very, as I said, efficient, but he is an oppressive ruler. Cromwell was never defeated on the battlefield. Never defeated. And when someone asked him why, he believed because it was divine providence, because he was God's instrument to purge England. But, as we said, everybody dies. And Oliver Cromwell does. Now, you can just imagine, this, is, this has been convulsive in England. Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, Catholic, Protestant, Puritan versus Anglican, Puritan versus Anglicanism, Puritanism versus Anglicanism. And now, all of a sudden, the king is out. You've got a whole new form of government. It is Presbyterian. Bishops are gone. They've been bishops for a long time, even under the Catholic days. So now the bishops are gone. As I said, what will happen is that Oliver Cromwell's son will eventually become the ruler, but he is not a very efficient ruler. Things go from bad to worse, and the next thing that happens is Parliament is inviting the king back. Charles II, as I said, had been living in exile since the time of the death of his father, and so what happens is there is a restoration of the monarchy in 1660 king comes back. What's the king going to do? He does a number of things as far as the church is concerned. He restores the Book of Common Prayer. But it's an updated version. They have been living under the Elizabethan prayer book, 1559. This is going to become the official prayer book of the Church of England to this very day, the 1662 version. We said that worship according to the Book of Common Prayer was outlawed. It now becomes compulsory. You must worship according to the Book of Common Prayer. And anybody that doesn't will be fined and imprisoned. Furthermore, the Claritin Codes are enacted. They are named for Edward Hyde, one of the king's ministers. He was the Earl of Clarendon. They require a number of things. First of all, the Corporation Act, which states that if you are going to serve in any public office in England you must sign an oath of allegiance to the king and you must be an Anglican in order to hold office. Incidentally, until the 19th century, Catholics could not hold public office in England. So, the Clarendon Codes are enacted, the Corporation Act, the Five Mile Act. This is one of my favorites. Puritan ministers were not allowed within five miles of a township. So they could preach, but they could not teach, but with five miles of the city. There's a restoration of the episcopacy. They initiated the Test Act, which again, as I said, required that every public servant be an Anglican. This was aimed against two groups. It was aimed against the Puritans, yes, but also against Roman Catholics. What is Charles II aiming for here? The strict via media that had been established by Elizabeth. The strict middle way between extremism. Extreme Catholicism on the one hand and extreme Protestantism on the other. What he wanted was a church that was Protestant in its theology, Catholic in its order, and he was willing to do whatever it would take to make sure that that happened. Now, he seems like a good Anglican, 
But on his deathbed, he converts to Catholicism. And you'll have to come back next week to hear the rest of the story. So, you can't make this stuff up, folks. So, let me just say this if you think it's bad in American politics today, imagine living through all of this. And yet, somehow, what will come out of it is a glorious tradition of Anglicanism. And we're getting to some of the glory days of Anglicanism in just the next few weeks. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you rule over the affairs of men and nations. And it does look to us to be a very messy thing. And yet you brought some magnificent things out of it. Anglicanism would go on to become a great blessing and one of the great missionary forces for the gospel in the world. And so in spite of the best and worst efforts of men, we give you thanks that you are sovereign that you are in control. And we thank you for this wonderful tradition that shapes us, molds us, and helps to make us into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Wow.